Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Well, we're going to be beginning a new sermon series today, guys. Are you excited? Oh, come on. I worked really hard on this. Come on. You're excited, right? All right. I love it. Well, we're so glad that you guys are here. Uh, we're going to be jumping into the book of Ephesians. So I, uh, we love the Word of God around here. If you're new, you'll find out that really quick. We love the Word of God. So uh, we just got through uh, going through Holy Week and studying all of the prophetic natures of Jesus and his, the timing of his arrival, the death, burial, the resurrection, and, and even a series that we talk, we're in and where we talked about the resurrected Jesus walking with the disciples before he ascended into the clouds. Well... Jesus has ascended, risen into the new clouds at this point. Amen? Welcome to the new you. That's it. He's ascended. You've put your faith and your trust in him, and now he has sent you into the world. How about that? And I thank God that you're here. Can I just say that? Talk about just in time, because this place is going to... H-E double hockey sticks in a handbasket. Has anybody else noticed that? I'm glad you're here, seriously. Thank God that you're here. You, specifically. I'm talking to you. I thank God that you're here. I'm not even being funny here, all right? Because you're up to the challenge, aren't you? You're up to it? Well, let me say this. In the event that there are a few here today who aren't so sure that I should be celebrating them as a champion of Jesus' global Victory, if you're not so sure, then this series is for you because as we study through Ephesians, which I'm excited, you know I love to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that's what we're going to be doing. The series is for you because you were once in darkness. You were once in darkness, but now you are light. The Apostle Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. But now, but now, you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. From dark to light, welcome to the new, the new you. How does it feel? I, I, it, I can tell it feels good. You guys are you're up for this today. I love it. So for the next several weeks, we'll be studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I believe it will be an identity-setting study that will call and instruct us to be who we are destined to be. Yes, I said destiny. I'm talking about destiny here, okay? And what's more is I believe this study will call us to see ourselves the way that he sees us which, by the way, is the key to your destiny. You ever wondered in life what your destiny is? You ever prayed to God, what am I supposed to do? What is your purpose for me? What is my destiny, God? The key, church, is to see yourself as he sees you. So I'm giving you the keys to your destiny in this series. How about that, huh? That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? Well, I mean it. 
So let's begin, shall we? Bible's open to, uh, to Ephesians. Let me give you a little context. I always love to talk about who, what, when, where, why, to what end, for what purpose, right? Maas Carmadeus in the 15th century was a, a translator, one of the first to translate the Bible from Latin into English, and he said, it will greatly benefit ye to consider who, the, who wrote the letter, to whom the letter was written, where they were at, what the socio-political climate was, geopolitical climate was. In other words, who, what, when, where, and why. So let's jump into that a little bit. Who wrote this letter? The Apostle Paul. Epistle is just a fancy way of saying letter, by the way. The Apostle Paul wrote it. To whom did he write this letter? To the church of the Ephesians and other regional churches. The letter was expected to be passed around, not just specifically to that one church. That was often the case with Paul's letters, intended to be circulated. When was this written? It was 61 AD. Roman occupation of the, re uh, the region was still in full go. Can I see a map? Just to, I want to paint a picture for you. Can we see this map of the area? You see the Mediterranean there, don't you? That's modern-day Turkey, modern-day Western Turkey. This was a, a, a pro-counselor of Asia is what it was referred to. In other words, it was a capital city second only to Rome. The population was 250,000 people. So this wasn't a small little village or anything, all right? They had a great harbor, a great harbor for, for trade. The harbor was uh, gradually ruined by the silting of the river Caister. But at this time, they had a great harbor. There was a giant temple of Artemis there. They worshipped the pagan goddess Diana. The pagan goddess Diana, which was nothing more than a, a, the pagan goddess Semiramis of Babylon, but now had traveled, this religion, this false religion, had traveled into modern-day Ephesus, and they made quite a temple dedicated to her. It took 220 years to build. That's something, huh? It was 418 feet by 239 feet. It had 127 columns that were 56 feet tall each. It was four times larger than the Parthenon downtown. So a little context for you. They liked to do some Diana worship up in there, all right? The Parth it stood, this, this, uh, this structure stood until six, uh, 262 AD when it was ruined by the Goths, and they worshipped all of the pagan gods there. I mean all of them. This was a culture that was riddled with paganism, riddled with sexuality, astrology, you name it. Any of the ancient mystery Babylonian religions, they were here. What a place, by the way, for Paul to leave young, young Timothy in charge of a church, huh? Yet that's what he did. There's a theater there. One more for you on who these people were. There's a massive theater there. The Greeks loved uh, Olympics, right? They loved sport. That's why Paul and his letters, they so oft, he so often uses athletic language. Well, they had a theater there. Can I see a picture of that? Take a look at this. This theater was excavated on the west side of Mount Choruses. It was the largest in the Hellenistic world. It seated 50,000 people. And it's made out of stone. 
Think of the Titan Stadium down, downtown, huh? Think about trying to build that thing out of stone, huh? Ephesus was ruled by Rome until 69 B.C., for, from 69 B.C. until 200 years after. Where was Paul when he was writing this letter? He was in prison. This is one of his prison epistles, okay? I believe he was in Rome, possibly Caesarea, where he was originally imprisoned, but Rome is the general consensus. He spent two full years in house arrest, chained to a praetorian sentinel, chained to a guard. You can read about that in Acts chapter 28, but just let me say this briefly. Can you imagine being chained to Paul for two years? <laughs> can you imagine what that would be like? Oh, my gosh. Well, I can tell you what happened because Paul tells us about what happened in Philippians chapter 4. They got saved. That's what happened. So this is one of the prison epistles. Four different friends carried Paul's prison epistles to Asia in the year 62 AD. So four friends running letters for him. Other visitors, a number of them. Uh, I won't read through all of them because I can't pronounce half their names anyway. Uh, John Mark, you know John Mark. He came and visited Paul there. He was asked, asked for him specifically. Timothy visited several times. He was Paul's spiritual son. He visited frequently. Uh, Luke, perhaps, uh, stayed often because Luke had such great insight into the recording of Acts. Many scholars believe that Luke probably just stayed there the whole time as he wrote and recorded everything that Paul t uh, talked about. But why is this letter written? Why should we care? Why should we read it now? And what does it have to do with us or for us? Well, the letter was written simply to instruct and to encourage. We could use a little bit of that nowadays, don't you think? This letter doesn't confront any heresy or problem within the church, but it will confront a lot of things we have to deal with outside of the church. Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than in any other place. So the gospel may have been more effective in this area than any other place or time. Honestly, in the history of the world, the gospel may have been more effective there than any other place in time in the history of the world. So let me give you a brief outline. If you're a note taker, you'll want this. Maybe take a uh, picture of the screen or write really fast. <laughs> We're going to see in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Paul's going to talk about a lot about doctrine. And this is where we get into who we are in Christ, what he did, the position that we now have in eternity. Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 talks about the duty that we all have. Not to be a, a, a big bummer, guys, but we have some responsibilities, don't we? What we should do in response to the love that Christ has given us and offered us freely. Paul balances in this letter doctrine with duty. We inherit the wealth by faith, and we invest the wealth by works. Amen? We'll see that over and over again. Also see, uh, for some of you who want to take this study even deeper in your own time, I won't do it in this series. But there's a parallel with Joshua. Can we see that next graphic? A couple parallels you will find with the book of, Old Testament book of uh, Joshua. The people of Israel entering into the possession of their promised inheritance. 
That's what we see with Joshua. The land, the faith to overcome giants even, amen? What do we see in Ephesians? Believers are called upon to enter by faith now into the possession of their promised inheritance as well. That wasn't my comparison, by the way. I'm not that smart. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, shall we? Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's a mouthful right out of the gate. This is his greeting. It's quite a mouthful for a greeting. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. This is important. I don't understand. Paul. We know the apostle Paul, right? He was originally, what was his name? Somebody shouted out. Saul, Acts 7, verse 58. He was named after King Saul. Named after King Saul. Who was, he was also a Benjamite, like King Saul was. The Benjamites were known for their warrior, warrior-like temperament. They were feisty. They were tough. Paul was born in Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus, a free Roman citizen. He was schooled in the Hellenistic culture, and he had pharisaical training by Gamaliel himself. So here's this feisty, tough guy named after a king, and Jesus changes his name from Saul to Paul. Anybody want to guess what uh, Paul means? Small. Interesting, huh? I wonder how he took that. You will be small, but I'm going to build my church on you. That's the heart condition you've got to have, by the way. We see there a prototype of what it, leads, it looks like to lead in the church itself, right? Jesus demonstrated leadership for us personally when he washed the disciples' feet. Remember? They said, no, 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 no. He said, oh, yes, yes, yes. It's a servant's heart. Paul says, by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul did not choose this occupation. He was chosen, just like you are chosen. And if you don't feel chosen, I hope I can accomplish that by the time we're out of here today. This epistle will bring us face to face with the sovereignty of God, and there's no way to get around it. And the mystery of his will. Six different times, as a matter of fact. So Paul says to the saints, the saints who are in Ephesus, he refers to the church as saints nine different times in this letter, as well as he does in Acts chapter 9 itself. The church doesn't make saints. You'll come to find out. God does. And it simply means, by the way, the saints, in Greek, it means set apart. When he calls the church saints, he's not calling them sinless people. You have to understand that. It's fundamental. But he's referring to them as saved sinners. Christians are also called disciples. They're also called people of the way. But here, by and large, Paul says they are set apart. They are saints. Verse 2, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Haris in the Greek. He's using it as a greeting. 
we talk about the, we've, we've talked in the past about the meaning of the word grace in the Greek, and it means an extension towards, right? So the grace that we receive from Jesus Christ, from our Lord, our Savior, is him reaching down to us. So he says, grace, charis, it's a Greek word that he uses here. In other words, to say, hello, he says grace. It's used 12 different times in Ephesians. And grace is always mentioned first. When he says grace and peace to you, grace is always mentioned first. And why is that? Because only after grace has dealt with the sin question can peace be known. Did you get that? Grace brings us peace. And then he says peace. He says shalom. So he speaks in the Greek, then he speaks in the Hebrew tongue to say, hello. Hello, church. In other words, Jew and Gentile in one body, in Christ, he's greeting both here. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There he gives his title, his name, and his mission. Lord Jesus, Lord Yeshua, Messiah. Title, name, and mission. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's what you're blessed with. That's good news, huh? That's why you guys are in such a good mood this morning. I'll tell you what. You knew what we were going to teach about, right? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, church. Now, these verses, pay attention, verses 3 through 14, they trace God's activity in salvation from eternity past through time through eternity future as well. We're going to get into some cool stuff here, guys, including the mystery of God's will, which was previously undisclosed, and now Paul is revealing it and disclosing it for everybody kind of a big deal, so I hope you're ready. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's a big statement, isn't it? Isn't it? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. Now listen, this is big. What did he just get done saying? Calling them saints. He's not suggesting that they don't have sin. So how, what, is, what is without blame? It means not guilty. The gavel has struck. Christ has paid the penance for your sins. And you have been declared not guilty. You're holy now and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons. This is, one, this is like my favorite chapter in the whole Bible to teach. It is. I might get excited here. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Whew, I got chills. Oh, come on now. Didn't I tell you that this is the key to your destiny? How you view yourself, church. Do you view yourself this way? Do you view yourself truly as he views you? Because the Holy Spirit says he views you this way. 
Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. There's no shortage. Verse 8, which he made to abound towards us. That means abundantly towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. The phrase in Christ here is used 27 times in this one letter. Pretty cool. 27 times in Christ is used. Does anybody know how many books in the New Testament there are? 27. Do you know how many different people wrote those 27 books? Nine? Yeah? Depends on if you, you know, Paul write Hebrews or, right? Yeah. I say nine. I believe Paul wrote that. So 27 books, nine authors, 27 in Christ, written by nine saints. To me, that's fingerprints of God stuff. Pretty cool. This is a look-here moment for me. But who is in Christ? Who is in Christ? A member of the body of Christ, vitally, church, united with him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's who is in Christ. He has procured, procured them all by his finished work on Calvary. He's brought you in. Everything God has for the believer is in Christ. Your position. So are you in Christ? Yes? Yes? Because let me tell you something. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're by your own accord. You're by your, you're by your own ability to achieve and accomplish and do good to get good, or you're in Christ. You're either lost to the sin and death and the broken covenant of Adam, or you're in new covenant with Christ Jesus. So who are you in What's your basis before God? In him. In him is where we have redemption, church. Redemption through his blood, but there's so much more to this. Can I see this picture? What does redemption mean? Let's see this definition. Here's redemption for you. To release by ransom. Whoo! Paid in respect of the eternal principles of righteousness which govern the universe to the whole holy law of God which humans have outraged and pitted themselves against. Redemption. We've been released by ransom. Your ransom has been paid. You were a slave to sin. You were captured by sin. You were dead in sin. Your ransom has been paid. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world, it says. That's a big line, isn't it? He predestined us, it goes on to say in in verse 5. He chose you, in other words. He chose you. Do you feel chosen? You are the chosen, church. 
I hope you feel special. I hope it makes you feel special. This means that, guess what? I want you to get this. I want you to hear me. I want it to sink in. This means that before he made you, foundations of the world stuff here, right? Before creation, before he made you, before Jesus ever had to suffer and die on the cross, he knew the cost and he decided then that you were worth it. That's love. If I create them, I give them free will. If I give them free will, then they can love, then they can know me. If I don't, they can't really know me because I am love. But if I do give them free will so they can choose to love and therefore truly love, then many of them won't choose to love me. And I'll have to suffer and die. And it was worth it to him. You were worth it to have this kind of relationship with him. Mm, don't take it for granted, church. How's your walk with Christ, huh? Is it intimate? Mm. He decided that you were worth it. He chose you. Let me see that word, chosen. Here's chosen in the Greek. Once and for all. I love it. Once and for all. Middle voice adds the sense of choosing for one's own self. He chose you for himself, chosen out of the world once and for all to be God's own peculiar treasure, chosen to be holy, not because we were holy, but to be holy. And not that we could even make ourselves holy, but he made us holy for us. That's something to get your head around, isn't it? That's good news. Some ask, though, is it fair, though? Is it fair that I'm chosen and some others aren't? Well, let me explain something to you guys, okay? We've got to understand uh, that things are not as always simple as they appear, even as we experience our life, okay? When we... When we travel through our life, we look forward, we look backwards, right? Yet we serve a God who knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha, the Omega, right? How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, <clears throat> it's going to take some dimensional perspective. Do you have it in you this morning? You see, we understand that in this life we exist in at least three dimensions, right? Height, width, girth, right? We're at least three-dimensional, right? Well, Albert Einstein, well, more than 100 years ago, discovered something. He discovered that time, actually, is a dimensional aspect as well. I've got, I don't think I really have time for this, but I have a few notes. If anybody wants this, you can ask me. The, this is about the nature of Einstein's revolution. We have the advantage of modern physics, although few appreciate its aid to our understanding of biblical insights. He wrote about special relativity in 1905, length, mass, velocity, and time being relative to velocity and the observers of those who are observing, I guess. Not, it's not really a scientist thing for me, right? In 1915, he wrote about general relativity, there were aircraft experiments done in 1971. Basically, the gist of it, 
I'm a gist of it kind of guy. I'll give you the gist of it. The gist of it is they did all these tests that if they were traveling different directions around the world and traveling at the same speed, they arrive at different times because of the rotation of the earth. Time changes depending on how fast you're going, which direction you're going, gravity, everything being earth-centric. As a matter of fact, these same equations were proven true when they did the math to decide if, it, if you're going to travel to Alpha Centauri at the speed of light and then come back. By the time you got back, everybody would be old and you wouldn't be. Just try to wrap your mind around that. Physics, it's physics. T time is a thing that exists here. One day we'll be free of time. Amen? Yay. Nobody grows old, nobody dies, right? No more sickness, no more tears. Who's ready for that? But we have to understand that God sees things from a dimensional perspective. I've always loved this uh, description. So we see in our lives, we're here today. I'm looking forward, you know, we're going to Florida in a few weeks. I'm looking forward in my, in my uh, life, right? I look back on things that I'm nostalgic about or regret. I'm looking back in my life. I'm looking forward, right? I'm looking at our church, looking forward, thinking, you know, what are we going to, where are we going to put everybody before too long, right? And God is good. He already knows. Because he knows the end from the beginning. Because he's not trapped in time. A great way of talking about it is, imagine you're standing on the side of the road uh, and the Macy's Day Parade is going by. You don't know what's coming next, but you know what, you know, you see things within this certain perspective. Whereas God exists from a third-party perspective. He looks down, he sees the end of the parade, he sees the beginning of the parade, he sees the whole thing all at once. That's how he sees you. So how can... How can it possibly be that you are chosen, predestined, yet have free will? This is where we get into some sovereignty of God stuff. And you just have to understand that he exists beyond us, right? How can you create something, give it free will to choose, yet know what it will choose, and therefore choose for yourself whom you will use? It's hard to even wrap your mind around, isn't it? Let me say it again. How can you create something, give it free will to choose, yet know what it will choose, and therefore choose for yourself whom among them you'll use? Yet he can. I kind of feel that way when I'm watching the NFL draft. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> the word we're looking for here is sovereignty of God. Or, in other words, I don't know Exactly, yet I do understand that free will is mine or I could not love, so he gave it to me to choose, yet he knew what I would choose and he chose me first. <laughs> right? So make no mistake, you are chosen. You are chosen. This word chosen, this term, is only used referring to God's purposes for his people. Predestination has, has to do with God's purpose with his people. It refers only to those who are saved. Election is something else we hear about in the Bible sometimes. It always has to do with people of God, uh, the, the purposes that he uses them for. In any case, you know what this comes down to? Existing outside of time, he knew your heart, and he chose you. 
That's pretty cool. And he chose a destiny for you to first and foremost be his heir, to be his heir. We are adopted to sonship. Come on now. Right? Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. You know what that means there, that adoption uh, adoption to sonship? That word there in the Greek is this. I've got a graphic for you. It means this. Huiothsia. Say that. Say huiothsia. You speak Greek now. Huiothsia. That's you. You are a fully legally adopted heir now. He adopted you for sonship. This is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. Adoption was not... was. Adoption was a Roman thing, okay? Not really a Jewish thing. It was a Roman thing. Not all offspring are heirs, yet he has chosen you, adopted you to be heirs. The lesson is you don't get... We we don't get into God's family by adoption. We get in by regeneration through new birth. But you are chosen to be a fully legally adopted heir. Now you have the rights to all of the inheritance. Adoption is the act of God by which he gives his born ones, born again ones, an adult standing in the family. That's pretty cool, huh? So that we can immediately, immediately begin to claim our inheritance. Do you claim that inheritance, church? You can immediately begin to claim your inheritance and enjoy your spiritual wealth here, now, today. Are you walking in that light? That light from dark to light, church. An infant cannot legally use his inheritance. You understand that, right? Can't legally do it, but an adult can and should. The future aspect of adoption comes to us again in Romans chapter 8. In regeneration, a Christian receives the nature of a child of God. In adoption, he receives the position of a son of God. That's who you are. And when does that happen? The moment that he believes. Let me look at that again. I might have you pull that back up on the screen. Mm. Verse, having predestined us, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. When we believed, church. the full manifestation of his sonship awaits. It awaits. One day we will see him appear in the clouds in the air and we will be made like him in a moment and the manifestation of everything. Right now we've been given the rights. Right now we've been given position. One day it'll all come to fruition through the resurrection church.
through the change, the translation of the saints, called the redemption of the body of Christ. Our conclusion conclusion is this. The, the Christian rests completely on his completed work, church. And secondly, the greatest mistake any Christian can make, the greatest mistake any of you can make, is to substitute your own will for the will of God. Why did he do it? He did it for his good pleasure. He would not be satisfied until he had surrounded himself with sons, daughters, conformed to the image of his holy, only begotten son, with him and like him forever. That's what he has ready for you, church. This is a lot of heavy lifting, isn't it? This is some foundational stuff. Can I see this next graphic? We're going to move through some topics just in chapter 1. We're going to be talk, we're talking about our blessings that God has for us, our riches in Christ. We're talking about election. We're talking about predestination. We're talking about redemption, adoption, the will of God, 12 different mysteries, dispensations of time, forgiveness, inheritance, the sealing of your heart by the promised Holy Spirit. That's still yet to come. And that's just in chapter 1. Let's keep reading. Verse 11 through 14. You ready? Let's go. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Here it is. This is our theme, our riches in Christ. Ephesians, guess what? The, the Ephesus, the city, it was considered the bank of Asia, by the way. So we hear him talking about uh, financial terms a lot here, right? Inheritance, whatnot. This was a depository for wealth of the region. So Paul uses financial words a lot. In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined. In other words, given a destiny in advance is what you have. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12. That we who first trusted in Christ, I love this, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also trusted. Now, other translations here will say believed, okay? But I think trusted says it better. We've talked about this uh, a lot, right? If I take a chair down here, the chair you're sitting in right now, if you believe it will hold you, that's one thing, but you don't really have any faith in the chair until you try to sit in it, right? You're trusting that it will hold you, okay? So what do we see here is the faith. After we, uh, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the promise of the Holy, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is the guarantor of our inheritance, the insurance of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? Amen. Again, this is my favorite <laughs> verse. How can this not be your favorite verse? What do we see in verse 13? When you trusted, when you believed, you were marked in him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What marked you? 
Anybody? Holy Spirit? What marked you? The Holy Spirit? When did you receive it? When you believed. Or was it when you believed and then you did a bunch of good deeds? You're generally a good person and believed. Was that it? The Holy Spirit marked you when you believed. And what does it do for you? This is good news. It guarantees our inheritance. By the way, this word here in the Greek uh, for inheritance, it is, it's suggestive of an actual inheritance, an actual inheritance of things in heavenly places. It's not just a title. As a side note, this also speaks to the fact that there is nothing, because there is nothing that you can do to receive the Holy Spirit other than to just believe and to trust, then there is nothing that you can do to lose it. And there's a lot of bad religion out there, right? Religion is just God, is just man trying to make himself worthy to God, right? But salvation is God coming to us and doing it for us. So there's nothing that you can do to receive salvation. There's nothing you can do to lose salvation if you still believe. You trusted in the finished work of the cross. You believe. You metanoia. You changed your mind. You went from not believing to believing and trusting in faith. That's not a, it's not a, a work, church. So you receive those gifts. Now, as to what gifts you receive, again, you know, there's nothing you can do. He decides which gifts you'll receive. After all, it is he that chose you, having predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Listen to that statement. He works out everything. God has a destiny for you. Are you getting that yet today? He chose you from before the foundations of the world. He has an inheritance prepared for you, good works for you to walk into. He's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. I don't know who in here feels lost or who watching on the television feels lost today. But if you are in Christ Jesus, your trust is in him for your salvation, your eternity. He's got a destiny for you. He's got a purpose for you. You don't need to feel lost You don't need to feel lost. Oh, my. (laughs) I'm going to have to leave verse 15 for next week, I think. I was about to say, so who in here wants to be enlightened? Anybody? Yeah. We see this stuff on the History Channel all the time, right? About the Illuminati, the enlightened ones, and now everybody thinks they know something that somebody else doesn't. Makes them feel special, I guess. But true illumination comes from the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Mm. Verse 18 will tell us that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that's you that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints. Enlightenment is something that he wants you to have. 
Let me just read this. All right, we'll read this, and then maybe I'll come back and do a little bit bigger, bigger dig on it next week. Let's read verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He wants that for you, church, in the knowledge of him that's for you. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. How much hope do you have in your heart and your life today, church? Come on now. What are the riches of his glory and of inheritance in the saints? What is that? And you have an inheritance. What is it? You can know it. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Those who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. Amen? We're going to stomp the ground for me, under his feet. Stomp the ground, under my feet, right? And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Enlightenment, church, means to simply rest in the knowledge of who you are now. This is who you are. Welcome to the new you. Mm. We are the Father's sons and daughters, fully legally bought and paid for with the blood of Christ. Being in Christ means we sit, he said, we're at the right hand of the Father. We sit with Christ at our Father's right hand. Enlightenment means you know your worth. It's impossible for you to step into your destiny and walk it out here and now, what he has for you, what he wants you to do in this life if you don't know whose you are. You know your worth. It means you stop living a life of hoping to be good enough, hoping that you'll measure up. You already have. He already did it. Enlightenment means you know who you are, why you are who you are. You know who you're not. Because the enemy wants to tell you you're that guy sometimes, doesn't he? And you know the hope to which he has called you, church. With every eye closed and every head bowed as I invite our ushers to get our communion ready. And Leith, if I could invite you to come up. If you're here today, and maybe you're somebody who struggles with how you think God views you, or you struggle with how you think he should view you, It's not because you're good enough, smart enough, holy enough. It's not because of anything you're able to do for him. It's out of love what he has done for you. And you seeing what he's done for you, believing, trusting, 
that the cross was enough. Put your hope in the cross, the finished work, the empty tomb. You put your hope in what Jesus did for you. And trust that he's got your eternity on lockdown. He's given you a new name. He calls you his own. The Holy Spirit has sealed your heart, guaranteeing an inheritance for you. Now we walk into good works and good deeds because our heart has changed. Not because we have to to be good enough, but because we want to. Out of gratitude for what he's done for us, if you're here today and identity is something that you struggle with, just raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Today's for you. You are in Christ. You are his beloved now. There's nothing you can do to be good enough. There's nothing that you can do to lose it. You're his. My children are my children. Even when they're disobedient, they're still my children. That's your standing through adoption. So if that's you here today, I want you to give that to the Lord. I want Say this prayer with me in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose from the grave on the third day. I believe that you love me. I believe that you adopted me as your own. I believe the cross was enough. Lord Jesus, take me as I am. I surrender to your love. Help me to see myself as you see me. I want to step into the destiny to which you have called me. I want to step into the good works that you've called me into. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the inheritance that you've prepared for me. You love us so well. In Jesus' name. What a good time to have communion together, huh? It was at Passover that Jesus with the disciples, they shared the Passover meal, the Seder meal, and Jesus lifted the bread. If you've never used these little things, there's cellophane on top for one layer and then the foil is the second one. They can be tricky. It was at the Passover that they celebrated this feast. The lamb was not to have one bone broken in it. They were to shed the blood in remembrance of when the death angel passed over. The Hebrew people in Egypt put the lamb's blood over the doorpost and the death angel, death, would pass over them. They would do this in remembrance, commemoration. And then Jesus came along and he fulfilled that feast prophetically. As he lifted up his body, he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me and what I'm doing for you because God knows we forget, right? And his body had not one bone broken. 
And he gave his life for us. No one took it from him. He gave it willingly for you that his body would be the sacrifice. So do this in remembrance of me. So church, I encourage you, just with a heart that is fully open to him and the Holy Spirit at his leading, take this. Let's take it together and remember his body given for us. And then he held up the cup of redemption. No coincidence, it was that cup. He said, this is my blood that is shed for you. So let's take it and drink together the cup of redemption, remembering the blood that was spilled on Calvary, that he would make us his own. We of Sia, fully legally adopted heirs. Let's drink. You know what this is? This is Jesus saying, remember who you are, church. Amen? Amen, amen. You were bought with the price that he freely gave that you would be sons and daughters of God most high. So let's live like it. Amen? From dark to light. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour his favor out on your lives. May you go in grace in full identity as sons and daughters of the Lord God most high. May you step into all the good works that he has for you. May you go in grace and prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. We love you guys. Thank you.